When Wisconsin Republican Paul Ryan leaves the U.S. House of Representatives later this year or early next, he will have served as Speaker of the House for just a bit over two years. Still as short as Ryan's tenure will have been by modern standards of the office, Tip O'Neill, for example, served 10 years, and the record holder for the longest tenure as Speaker is Sam Rayburn at 17 years. Ryan still will look almost like he retired in the job compared to a guy named Theodore Pomeroy, Speaker Theodore Pomeroy of New York. Speaker Pomeroy holds the distinction of serving the shortest term as Speaker of the House. He occupied the job for just one day, March 3rd, 1869, and then he was gone and mostly forgotten. Speaker Ryan will be gone in a few months, too, but likely not forgotten. The gentleman from Minnesota, Mr. Klein, is recognized for one hour. That little burst of raucous floor action in the House of Representatives might be a metaphor of sorts for Paul Ryan's often rocky tenure in the position that does stand second behind the vice president in order of succession. Ryan did engineer passage of a massive tax cut bill, but he's also often been at war with his own House Republican caucus. And he's had an uneasy relationship with President Donald Trump. And I have every confidence that I'll be handing this gavel on to the next Republican Speaker of the House next year. So just to close, I said earlier that I didn't want this job at first. And you, most of you know this. I really actually didn't. But I have to thank my colleagues for giving me this opportunity and this honor. I am really grateful for it. The, the Speaker it's, is itself a constitutional office, um, unlike actually the Senate Majority Leader. Uh, and so the Speaker has is, is traditionally been seen in this country um, as the most powerful member of Congress. That's Professor Josh Ryan, an expert on the job of Speaker of the House. Professor Ryan teaches at Utah State University, and he is one who will help me explore not only Paul Ryan's fleeting tenure as Speaker, but also what's happened to this job a job that will soon see the sixth new Speaker of the House in the last 18 years. And later on in this episode, we'll remember another Speaker of the House, the only Speaker from the Far West, and only one of three sitting Speakers of the House to lose a re-election. Even with votes still being counted and the race still close, Tom Foley today congratulated his opponent, thanked his staff, and conceded the outcome. It appears to me that when all the votes are counted... We may fall a few votes short. Tom Foley's defeat in 1994 was both historic and the end of an era, the first defeat of a sitting speaker since 1862, and the arrival of Newt Gingrich and a new and still evolving brand of sharply partisan politics. The NRA and conservative talk radio went after Tom Foley in 1994 over his voting for a ban on assault weapons, And that tells you a great deal about why that ban was allowed to lapse back then and why we're still fighting over it 20-plus years later. Ironically, Tom Foley, who came of age in a much less partisan time, dedicated his speakership to an old-fashioned model that stressed civility, consensus-building, nonpartisanship, and caution. Those qualities seem downright quaint these days when we seem to change speakers with wild abandon, and when Congress is widely seen as dysfunctional. I'm Mark Johnson, and this is Many Things Considered, 
And here again is Utah State University professor Josh Ryan on the speaker. Modern speakers uh, like Paul Ryan, typically very good fundraisers. They raise a lot of money for their, for their uh, candidates and their House members. Um, they try to protect them from divisive issues, try to ensure they don't take any votes that are going to make the majority party members look bad. Um, and so they really have this, this sort of important role to play as both head of this formal sort of constitutional office of head of the House and also as head of the majority party. Many Things Considered is an independent podcast that explores our current politics by examining our history. Our aim is to provide perspective and insight in the belief that history matters. Past episodes are available at our website, manythingsconsidered.com, or on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for future episodes, and we hope you'll follow the podcast on Facebook or on Twitter at The Johnson Post. This episode, Mr. Speaker, here again is Mark Johnson. So why did Paul Ryan do it? Quit the second most powerful political job in the American political system. Stephen Colbert on The Late Show on CBS has a theory. Of course, there's a lot of speculation that Ryan is jumping ship before a big Democratic wave sweeps the midterms, but... According to Ryan's friends, there's another reason Ryan is leaving. After Ryan passed tax reform, his longtime dream, he was ready to step out of a job that has become endlessly frustrating, in part because of President Trump. What? (laughs) Working with President Trump is frustrating? That's not what the last 30 people who quit said. (laughs) But I get it. For one additional perspective on just how unusual Paul Ryan's decision is, I sought out one of the most authoritative voices on Wisconsin politics. I'm Charles Franklin. I'm director of the Marquette Law School poll and also a professor of law and public policy at Marquette. You have to admit that since the 1990s, the House of Representatives has been a relatively tumultuous place. Three speakers who immediately preceded Ryan served four years, six years, and four years. John Boehner, four and a half years in the job, he quit in 2015, And now Ryan has done something virtually unheard of in the history of that position. Well, in Ryan's particular case, we're well into the election year. Uh, He, as Speaker, has been a major fundraiser for Republican candidates, uh, congressional candidates across the country. And so for him to set the example of stepping out (laughs) of the campaign uh, is unusual, to say the least, for for speakers and for party leaders, you might have expected him to announce retirement six or eight months ago, uh, or you might expect him to to push through the election and then announce his retirement after the, the election. So it's a little unusual to do it when he did. It's fair to say that in Wisconsin we were coming up on the time when uh, signatures to get on the ballot had to be submitted. So in that sense, he was constrained that other candidates would need the time to get the petitions to get on the ballot, uh, and he couldn't wait any longer to announce that decision. Still, for a, a speaker to uh, step out of the role 
partway through an election cycle, especially one where I believe the count is now 40 Republican retirements, sets a, an example that's got to be a little disheartening uh, to other Republican candidates. Does it put his seat in play in Wisconsin? Well, he has a very Republican seat, and certainly it's more in play with him not seeking re-election. Uh, but the party balance of that seat is about 10 points or so more Republican than the state as a whole. So it'll be the best chance Democrats have had at it since Ryan was first elected in 98. But I think any reasonable analysis is it's a seat that still leans Republican. Professor Charles Franklin says it's true that Ryan was bedeviled by interparty turmoil particularly from the so-called Freedom Caucus in the House, the very, very conservative branch of the very conservative GOP. But he also thinks something else is at play here. I think we could also pull back to a little more history, and that is that in a way, the Congress has given more power to the Speaker in the process of weakening the committee system and weakening committee chairs by putting term limits on committee chairs, by often not developing legislation through the usual process of hearings within committees and bill markup and negotiation there. Instead, that, that power has been concentrated more in the offices of the leadership, which on the one hand empowers the leadership, but on the other hand gives them less bargaining leverage with other party members, including especially uh, committee chairs. So I think it's it's an irony that the speakership is both more powerful than it used to be, but in other ways less powerful than it used to be. Paul Ryan's speakership will be remembered for its short tenure, for that controversial tax cut, and for Ryan's reluctance to have the job in the first place. I asked Marquette's Charles Franklin about a Ryan legacy. I think that one's harder to say. He has certainly built... Um, an issue, especially entitlement reform, or as critics would say, cuts to various entitlement programs, that has moved to the agenda of the Republican Party in a way that uh, maybe 20 years ago when he first arrived in Congress, it was not. And sometimes parts of that agenda have passed the House only to then die in the Senate. So as a, a broad set of major legislative achievements, I'd say no, but he has not left a big legacy. As an agenda setter and uh, the role he's played in in the institution, maybe he's left more of a legacy there. So there's those those legacy days of powerful members of the House who could put their stamp on legislation, I think really does belong to an earlier era right now. And Utah State University political scientist Josh Ryan, no relation to the speaker, says Ryan struggled, as did his predecessor John Boehner, with fellow Republicans almost as much as he did with House Democrats. We don't know what's going to happen if, say, Democrats were to take back the House uh, in 2018. There are some rumblings that Nancy Pelosi, may, uh, her time as speaker may be coming to an end uh, if the Democrats were to take back the House. But certainly on the Republican side, and they've been in the majority since 2011, um, the, the speakers, the two speakers they've had, have had a really hard time sort of 
unifying the party. The speaker, speakers do have tools to, to, to keep members in line. Um, they have tools like committee assignments, uh, and Boehner used some of those tools to try to keep members in line. They've certainly got tools when it comes to fundraising, how they distribute the money that they raise. Um, they have to be careful, though, because they can't be seen by the party as sort of abusing those tools or, or trying to bully people uh, because they are pressured by this, um, the Republicans anyway, are pressured by this sort of uh, more conservative coalition and speakers have to sort of manage them, keep them in line, Republican speakers recently, um, without going too far. And and it, it's really this interesting split that the next Republican Party leader, um, if the Republicans maintain control of the the House, and in 2018, it looks like it's going to be Kevin McCarthy who's going to be the new speaker, he'll face the same issues. When we come back, the last speaker who employed a different approach to the job, Tom Foley from Spokane, Washington. Foley stood tall. Some of his successors could hide in a field of stubble. You're listening to Many Things Considered a podcast that looks to politics past to make sense of politics present. If you enjoy these stories, please pass the word, and you can give us a boost by reviewing the podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher. Now, back to... Mr. Speaker! So with partnership, but with purpose... I pass this great gavel of our government with resignation, but with resolve. I hereby end 40 years of democratic rule of this House. That was 1995, and House Democratic leader Richard Gephardt turns over the gavel held by a Democrat since 1955 to Republican Newt Gingrich of Georgia. Gingrich set the stage to become the first Republican speaker since, well, here's a little political trivia for you, since Joe Martin of Massachusetts left office in 1955. And Gingrich became speaker in no small part because of a scandal involving another speaker, Democrat Jim Wright of Texas. Gingrich was all over the news back in that period, demanding an investigation and insisting that Speaker Wright was dishonest and the party he led in the House untrustworthy. Based on the public printed record, there are four areas which clearly merit further inquiry. They are, one, 1979 reports of Speaker Wright intervening with President Anwar Sadat on behalf of a businessman who had only weeks earlier allowed Wright to invest in one of his proven oil wells. Two. Before long, Jim Wright was gone after more than 30 years in Congress a victim of what seems like a rather tame scandal now over a vanity book that he allegedly improperly benefited from. Ironically, Newt Gingrich was eventually forced out of the speakership for similar transgressions involving his books. June 1989, the day Speaker of the House Jim Wright left Congress. One last dance with the Washington Press Corps. You ought to treat guys this well when they come to Washington. (laughs) They'd always want to stay. He wore a smile, but the pain he felt at leaving was evident in his voice. This is a great place. It's the greatest place in creation. This is the people's house. Jim Wright, the tough partisan who relished the power inherent in the Speaker's job, was replaced by an entirely different kind of politician. 
a big, well-spoken Irishman from Washington State's 5th Congressional District. That's eastern Washington. Thomas Stephen Foley. You have bestowed upon me a great honor and a great responsibility. I will devote every ability I have to justify and maintain your confidence and the integrity of this House of Representatives and protect the rights and welfare of all members so that we can fulfill our high responsibility in representing the people of this nation. I'm Joel Connolly. I am a blogger and a columnist with SeattlePI.com, which is the successor to the Seattle Post Intelligence or newspaper for which I worked for 35 years. Joel Connolly covered Tom Foley in Washington and covered his campaigns in Washington State. Connolly says Foley was a presence, a big guy, the kind of fellow who dominates a room. He always seemed well turned out, always with a pocket square, and often one of those old-school collar bars on his dress shirt. The one time I was in his office, classical music hummed from his stereo system. And in addition to being a presence, he was somebody who was widely respected in the House for his fairness. You could ask Foley to sum up an issue, and he would not essentially put his thumb on the scales of how he was going to vote, but he would give you both sides of it. Uh, He was also a man of the House, probably best seen during the great battles over in the 1980s over President Reagan's proposals for aid to Nicaragua's counter-rebels. Foley was the chief voice in the House summing up debate against this. Uh, Representative Henry Hyde, the Illinois Republican, was the chief uh, chief uh, person summing up debate for the aid to the Contras. And these two Irishmen would boom out kind of like World War I dreadnoughts firing at each other. And when the whole debate was over, they would leave the floor of the House theatrically arm in arm. Tip O'Neill was reported to have said that Tom Foley could argue three sides of every issue, a characterization that Foley accepted by saying caution in looking for the best solution isn't always a bad character trait in a politician. Jeff Biggs served as Foley's press secretary and co-wrote a book with Foley, Honor in the House. And I'm now going to quote from our book, in which he said, Throughout my career, one of my own unspoken standards was that if I didn't take at least one vote a term that jeopardized my job, then I was maybe going down a slippery slide. If I went through a term never having felt that there was an issue of importance where my opinion was such that I hadn't taken an unpopular or dangerous vote, then I ought to start a really serious debate with myself about whether I was becoming addicted to the office to the extent that I was compromising my views. The test was not my opinion. The test was the risk. In a conservative district, there were generally a variety of risks and perils. And I think when you look at the 1994, uh, his effort to be reelected, where he became the first, the third speaker in the history of the country ever to have lost, he really took to heart taking these issues at risk. On the day he became Speaker, June 6, 1989, Tom Foley told Jim Lehrer of the PBS NewsHour how he intended to operate as Speaker of the House. Uh, These uh, tendency towards recrimination and rancor developed over many months, some would say over many years. 
I think what's essential to turn us back toward a, a mood of conciliation and mutual respect is the fairness that I intend to demonstrate if I have any capacity to, to do uh, this, I intend to exercise it to convince all of the members of the House that I'm going to be impartial, that I'm going to conduct the speakership with absolute fairness toward both parties. Fully um, emphasized uh, until my eyes would uh, go skyward that he was the Speaker of the whole House, of all members of the House, which included, of course, the minority. Um, and when there was a voice vote on the House floor, even though the Democrats had a fairly large majority, and the Republicans sounded loudest in the voice vote, he would rule for them. you got to go back in time and recall that when he was Speaker and Bob Michael of Illinois was the Republican leader, they would have weekly leadership meetings. And it got to the point where they would even alternate the venues. So one week it would be in the Speaker's office, and the next week in Mr. Michael's office. Now, the idea of that kind of, if you like, bipartisan leadership collaboration, I think is almost would be unheard of in today's very polarized world. So we are so polarized that the the chance of a Republican speaker and a Democratic leader meeting on a weekly basis to discuss, discuss the upcoming agenda is almost unheard of. The 1994 midterm elections were, it's easy to see now, a genuine turning point in American politics. Led by Newt Gingrich, an often caustic, deeply partisan Republican, the GOP captured the House for the first time in 40 years. If this is not a mandate to move in a particular direction, I would like somebody to explain to me what a mandate would look like. Historians will be debating the impact and import of the Newt Gingrich era for a long, long time to come. But many already agree that Gingrich as Speaker, coming in the wake of the kind of bipartisan approach that Tom Foley tried to utilize, that Gingrich in effect broke the House, with the effects still reverberating through our politics today. Writing in the Atlantic magazine when Gingrich was running unsuccessfully for president in 2016, Michelle Cottle said, and I quote, How did Gingrich break the House? Let us count just some of the ways. For starters, there was his elevation of legislative obstructionism to a central political strategy. Long before there was a Ted Cruz government shutdown in 2013, there were Gingrich shutdowns of 1995 and 96, the latter of which lasted three weeks and still stands as the longest in U.S. history. Not that anyone should have been surprised. Such chaos was all part of Gingrich's long-standing quest to undermine public confidence in government. It was like pulling the pin on a hand grenade and rolling it down the aisle of a subway car and just, you know, regardless of who got hurt, it would be on both sides of the aisle, but from the Republican point of view, uh, there were gonna, there were more Democrats, so more Democrats would uh, be hurt than Republicans. That '94 election resulted of that. The Democrats went into the election with 256 members, 78 more than the Republicans, 
And this was after having been in the majority for 40 years. Democrats lost eight seats in the Senate and 52 seats in the House. And the Republicans only needed 40 seats, a net gain of 40 seats to get the majority, and they got it. Tom Foley was swept out of office in 1994, in a way a victim of his own rule that he had to occasionally take positions at odds with his own conservative constituents. Jeff Biggs remembers the issues that caught up with Tom Foley. So you had Warren term limits, you had gun control, and then, of course, you had uh, the Clinton budget, which got no Republican votes. And so you had three sort of counts against you, and he went into that with an avalanche of conservative opinion being rallied against him with the talk show hosts and Ross Perot, and it was just more freight than his train could handle. You could sit in the Merchant's Deli in Walla Walla, Washington, my favorite place for uh, reading uh, political tea leaves, and see the race swing back and forth, people disliking Foley, then realizing his value. And a substantial number of 5th District voters um, in polls uh, assumed that whoever they elected would become the next Speaker of the House. I'll be back with some final thoughts in just a minute. To read more about some of the issues discussed within this episode, visit the Many Things Considered Facebook page. We've posted links to information on the job of the Speaker of the House, as well as articles about Tom Foley, Newt Gingrich, and others who have held the job. We also have links to Joel Connolly's political writing at the Seattle PI and the Marquette Law School public opinion poll that is headed by Charles Franklin. Here again is Mark Johnson. It is the rare politician who will admit to caring about a legacy, but of course they all do. And what a politician accomplishes, after all, is how we assess their importance their impact. In thinking about Tom Foley's legacy, I flash back on something Charles Franklin, the director of the Marquette Law School poll, said earlier about Paul Ryan's legacy. Listen again. So those, those legacy days of powerful members of the House who could put their stamp on legislation, I think, really does belong to an earlier era right now. Perhaps Tom Foley should be remembered as the last Speaker of the House with a legacy of real legislative accomplishments, including deficit reduction, the Graham-Redmond-Hollings legislation. Foley was a free trader, and he pushed collegially and successfully the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, even when the rest of the Democratic leadership in the House opposed the measure. Unpopular now with many Republicans, We should remember that NAFTA only passed in the first place because of GOP votes in the House. Whether you agree or not, Foley strengthened the nation's social safety net and exerted considerable effort to pass the 1993 Family and Medical Leave Act, all with Democratic and moderate Republican support. Tom Foley encouraged the motor voter legislation that made it possible to register to vote while renewing a driver's license. And he always took care of his eastern Washington district with highway improvements and economic development. And no, the man who replaced Tom Foley, George Nethercutt was his name, did not become Speaker, as apparently many eastern Washington constituents actually believed would happen. 
After bashing Foley in 1994 for opposing term limits, Nethercutt violated his own promise to serve only three terms. He wound up serving five terms, became a lobbyist, and today is best remembered, well, he's remembered as the guy who beat Tom Foley. The question is on ordering the previous question. Those in favor say aye. Those opposed say no. The opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. Congressional approval ratings, according to the Gallup poll, are at a near-record low. 18% of Americans surveyed recently by Gallup had a favorable view of Congress. Another legacy of Speaker Tom Foley's tenure is that he worked hard to address that public disdain of the institution, and congressional approval was markedly higher during his tenure than it is today. Here again is Jeff Biggs, who served as Foley's press secretary. You know, you had more moderates in the Republican Party in the House at that time than you probably do now. I mean, it's we've sort of pushed the Democrats to the left or the Republicans to the right. And so it makes it very difficult to find any sort of common ground. I remember Senator Dole at one point said he wanted to, he didn't want to preserve an issue for the next election. He wanted to sit down and negotiate a compromise with the other side. And if he only walked away with a half a loaf, that was better than no loaf. And he'd come back later and try to get the rest. But that sort of, that would have been a Foley way of approaching things, where you really were looking for some sort of common ground, not only within your own caucus, but also with the Republicans. And I think he just had a sense of reverence for the House that should prevail today. I mean, I think it was Speaker McCormick that said this, that if you come to work in the morning and see the sun rising over the Capitol, and you leave at night with the sun setting over the Capitol, and you don't think how very fortunate you are to be representing your constituents in a body like the House of Representatives, then maybe you've been around too long. So I think Foley had a reverence for the institution of the House, not just his own office. Tom Foley finished his public service as U.S. Ambassador to Japan. President Clinton appointed him in 1997, and he served until 2001. When Foley died in 2013, he was 84, He was fondly remembered during a memorial service at the U.S. Capitol building. And I'll leave you with the words of then-Speaker John Boehner, Representative Jim McDermott, an old Foley Powell from Washington State, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and President Barack Obama. A leader grounded in decency and principle, he brought honor to himself, to his family, and to this House. And he did all these things a public servant should do, and frankly, did many of them better than the rest. But it was his sense of fairness, his port in a storm bearing, that will always stand out for me. It's how he held uh, this institution uh, together at a very difficult time. When he assumed the speakership, he brought to it a scholar's depth of understanding and a disciple's passion He led the House with fairness and comedy, a style of leadership we haven't seen 
Uh, we recently have looked for it, but we have not seen what Tom was able to do with both sides. Tom and I weren't on the same side on most issues. His faith in government was, shall I say, a little more robust than mine. But we shared a deep respect for the institution and a belief that working with the other side, particularly at a time of divided government, is no heresy when it enables you to achieve some good for the nation. That kind of comedy is sometimes viewed as old-fashioned around here, but that's never been true. When we're standing outside these magnificent buildings, we have that sense of wonder and that sense of hope. And sometimes the longer you're here, the harder it is to hang on to that. And yet, Tom Foley never lost it. Never lost that sense of wonder, never lost the sense of gratitude. What a privilege uh, he felt it was to serve. And he never forgot why he came here. On behalf of this nation and his state and the citizens that he loved and respected so much. Thanks to the PBS NewsHour for that memorable audio, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Mark Johnson. Until next time. Mr. Speaker!